It's the 23rd of December. Um, the podcast has been out a number of weeks and John and myself have been really blown away by the terrific reception we've had all around the globe. Um, I recently received a copy of Lion Man from Sir Ian McGeekin, a gentleman who's synonymous with Lion's success. And I wanted to open the second episode just by reading an, an excerpt which uh, references John and uh, the great times they had post-tour. So, taken from Lion Man, page 176, from Sir Ian McGeekin. It was a fantastic tour, but obviously the financial situation was poor and worrying, especially after 23 years of support and understanding from the school. That was something to chew over as the tour ended and we prepared to stop over in Fiji. But when we landed, we found that the rugby fraternity had got together again. John Hall, chairman of Gulliver's Travels, the most famous of the rugby travel firms, and which always brings thousands of fans to follow the Lions, John had been involved in one of the key matches of my career as a second row alongside Roger Utley in the North East Counties team, which lost narrowly to the All Blacks at Bradford in 1972. It was the game watched by Bill Dickinson, the Scottish coach, and it put me on the Scottish radar for the first time. John had organised the stay at the Beachside Regent Hotel, along the coast from Nadi, and which was outstanding in every way. Its pool and bar area were lit after dark by flaming torches, and the sea, la sea lapped at the hotel beach just yards from the rooms. Rugby in Fiji is based either on government teams, on army teams, or on hotel teams, and the Regent Hotel had its own team. Before long, the hotel management approached me. They had a big game coming up against the local club team. Would I coach them for the occasion? It meant extending the stay, but it was an easy decision to make. I rang my headmaster back in Leeds and I told him I was staying longer to pursue a rugby opportunity, but he didn't need to know what it was. He wasn't paying me anyway. He'd brought in a supply teacher. So ultimately, what could he say? He was not happy, but we stayed on and I became coach of the Regent Rugby 15. It was a rare delight. They, or should I say we, had a really good team. On to episode two with John Hall. thinking there's a gentleman named Dave Trott who is senior in the advertising industry he always tells a little joke to just to convey what his meaning of upstream thinking is and he says two guys are walking through a jungle when they come across a tiger so the one guy stops and swaps his uh, boating shoes for running trainers and the other guy says, well, what are you doing that for? You're not going to outrun a tiger. He says, well, I don't have to outrun a tiger. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> so your, yeah. your, your story that I hopefully will articulate for us now, your, your great, who you jumped against in Bradford in 1972, Mr. Andy Hayden, 
you'd said he was influential on your career and it would be wonderful if you could tell tell us a little about why he was so important and uh, your experience of what I believe was the inaugural World Cup, the very first one. Well, in the early 80s, um, and, uh, and I, I, I made contact with Andy again, and um, because we were starting to do tours from New Zealand, as well as the, there was the Lions tour in 1983, which was um, took off pretty well. Um, um, I organised a tour for Auckland to the UK. I think they played Pontypool, um, Gloucester. It was a five-match tour. I remember it was Sean Fitzpatrick's first tour. But in those days, we used to help to finance it. So I'd go to a club like Pontypool or Gloucester, say, can you give us £3,000 to go to the, boy, the, the team's expenses? So I'd done all that with Andy. And then as the... In just going into the 80s, if you think that... Hong Kong Sevens were really starting to build up. Um, you had the 1980 uh, Lions to South Africa, was uh, 83 to New Zealand. Bigger numbers were starting to move. Um, we even had an 85, a Golden Oldies thing, which probably one of the first major rugby sponsorships, if you like, but, and it, it was just for veteran rugby players, but Air New Zealand were, got, were behind it. And we did, everything they had a golden oldies festival in london and we had about four and a half thousand came in for that it was quite a remarkable event and opening ceremony at twickenham and, and big sort of cocktail parties and all the rest of it but back then a lot of the the old rear guard irb kind of old school tie guys weren't really comfortable with the way rugby was going in on the the, the whole idea about the commercialising of, of rugby. And I remember even the, uh, the Hong Kong Rugby Union were actually affiliated to the rugby union, the RFU at Twickenham. And I remember wanting to get going with um, a brochure for whatever it was, 81, 82 or something or other. And they said, oh, no, you can't do it. We've got to ask the RFU permission to hold the event again. And the RFU held back and held back, which was just ridiculous. But it was all to do with, um, you know, a lot of old school guys there who didn't want to, uh, they didn't like where they thought rugby was heading. So, but at the same time, Australia, New Zealand, they were the, the movers on it, on trying to get, there had to be a Rugby World Cup. If you're getting big numbers for Lions tours, big numbers for, um, well, Hong Kong Sevens particularly, um, they wanted to get in on the act. And there was a guy, John Howard, who was a good pal of mine, who was treasurer of the Australian Rugby Union, and a guy, Dick Littlejohn, in New Zealand. And they really worked hard to persuade the IRB that they should have a, a World Cup. And eventually, but it all came very late. I mean, that World Cup was in 87. It was 86 when we got the, they got the nod, there's going to be a World Cup in jointly between Australia and New Zealand, 87. And as part of that, the IRB in their office, which really was just the East India Club in, in London, um, said, right, well, uh, and I, this stuck until very recent years that the IRB, World Rugby as it is now, would have 50% of all stadium tickets to sell. 
so that they could commercialize those. And it was probably the right thing to do. So it meant, but the, the tickets that were distributed in Australia and New Zealand were only for Australian and New Zealanders. That's what the idea was. And then the IRB would have the other tickets. So what happened was they decided, they, they left it really, really late. And um, we were well into our stride by about 86 and getting, and we knew we would take a lot of people to New Zealand, but we couldn't get any confirmation of getting any official tickets. So <clears throat> Andy said to me, you know, there's um, there's a stand at Eden Park called the Scotsman stand. And there's there's normal stands on three sides of Eden Park. But at one end, I think there was something like four houses um, overlooking that end of the ground. No different to the south or the north stand at Twickenham. Fantastic view of the ground. And this one enterprising lady had and her husband had built this wooden stand in their in their back garden basically overlooking the, the ground he said why don't you come down and see it and at least it'll be a backstop for you and um so i did i went down to auckland went up to see the lady and um she uh, i think it, it took about 150 and had about 150 seats in it and um she I mean, health and safety would have been all over it, but, but that didn't matter. What she'd been doing for a few years had been, it was $5 a ticket. And for that, you got a beer at half time and a barbecue sausage on a stick or something, which her husband used to do at half time. It was great stuff. But she was loath to sell the whole lot to me because of her regulars. She didn't want to upset them. And then at some stage of the discussion, she happened to mention, oh, she was really wanting to go on a cruise, never been on a cruise before. So I said, well, I can perhaps help find you can I can help finance that for, you, you know, um, I'd be very happy to pay you all the money up front um, for, for all the tickets in that stand for the final. And um, I said, what's more, you, uh, well, I'll, I'll pay you ten dollars a ticket and you don't have to do the barbecue at half time either. And she said, oh, will you? My goodness. So pretty well the next day, I think she called Andy and said, been thinking about this. Um, if, it, if I could be paid, I can pay the deposit on this cruise. So we had it. We had it, had it all in place. And it was, um, but it wasn't, an, a, a, which was just as well. It took, it was only about eight months before the World Cup itself took part, took, took place, that um, the IRB appointed theatre, the theatre guys, theatre ticket people in London, Keith Prowse, to do the ticket allocation for the rest of the world. So we had to get the tickets from them. We got them from them, okay, but uh, you know, it could have been a case of if Keith Prowse had wanted to try and capture the whole thing for themselves, and they had a, an offshoot travel business anyhow, um, it, it could have been awkward for us, and but we Andy had helped us just have this backstop there. And as it happened, I think I mean we ended up taking about eleven hundred people to that World Cup. But that, those one hundred and fifty tickets or seats in that stand, we used them, and um, we had about we had a lot from France. We put about we filled it with French fans, and they were quite happy with it. It was a seat. 
great seats overlooking the ground and um, every, yeah, it, it all all went well but it was just one of those little backstops I had to have and again it came through Andy who I'd met what 15 years earlier uh, on on a, in a stadium at, at Bradford. But not only have you met, it, it, it's not exactly uh, going around the corner to double check on something, right? You did jump jump on a plane and flew over to Auckland to, to see it firsthand and meet with the ladies. So you, you did invest tremendous time and effort in, in making that possible. Yeah, no, I mean, it had to be done. It, it was, uh, as I say, it was just a bit of an insurance policy. And was that Keith Crow's era? Were, were the Anand brothers involved then, or was it prior to their acquisition? Oh no, yeah, Ranj and Dev were 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 the because they had uh, Expertel, and um, I mean, good good company, um, but I, I think they had hoped that they would um, perhaps get a lot more in the following World Cup, uh, which was going to be in the UK in '91, and in fact we did have. A bit of a battle there to get that to get the contract to do all the uh, inbound operation and uh, allocation of tickets but but um I, i'm not sure what, where expertel went after that but they i don't think they actually came into the sports travel thing that much john you mentioned the nuns and the gents from cheltenham north who originally wanted to go to the beer festival and obviously that that Initially, in the early days, it was male-centric and heavily focused on, on male bonding, if you like. But I think it would be fair to say that sport and rugby in general, over the latter decade, and certainly whilst you were at the helm, there were more couples and ladies, and it would be far more commonplace that, that ladies would be watching rugby and other sports. Are you able just to get talk a little about the progression and sports travel from a female point of view yeah well given that 80 percent of the gulliver's team who worked on events were female and also traveled with the groups their presence on the road overseas actually no doubt helped to persuade many other ladies um, who liked their sport to come along and if i if i think back right back to the the first big lines tour we did in uh, to south africa in 1980 Bill, Billy Beaumont was captain, and his mother and father travelled with uh, with Gulliver's to fo uh, following the uh, the tour. And as time went on, many other players' parents came on rugby and cricket tours to such an extent that our, our tours had had many couples, probably a lot more than what anybody ever kind of earlier on, and, and certainly in the seventies, might have thought. Um, but we also started taking on board lots, as I say, lots, lots of, of, of single ladies who just liked their sport, who wanted to come along. Um, we we had uh, I, I remember particularly the Hong Kong Sevens were a lot of our was a lot of single girls, and I, I actually recall a very well known still current TV news anchor um, who came with her with a, 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 a girlfriend of hers. Uh, and of course, we also had the likes of when we had Phil Bennett um, and um, Alan Phillips. The guys used to bring their wives with them. So, I mean, Phil had his lovely wife Pat mixed used to mix so well, you know, particularly with a with our our 
great big massive you know, uh, Welsh contingents. And uh, likewise, Thumper, as I say, Phillips Kerry, his wife uh, often came along too. But in terms of participating sports for women, I guess we had the most in the, uh, attached to the uh, New Zealand Gold and Oldies hockey festivals that we, that we did. And we did quite a few of those. And a lot of those those tours were very, um, uh, were mixed teams. There were mixed teams, but we did those events in 1989 in Bournemouth, 1997 in Dublin, 2005 in Den Bosch in, the, in Holland, 2011 in Edinburgh, very much like the, the, the rugby ones we did. And they were big, big events, but again, a lot of very good look, looking women from as far afield as Argentina, South Africa, Australia, uh, amongst the, in the teams. And, and then lastly, uh, sort of on, on talking about the females, female side, I mean, we had such a good team at Gulliver's um, through all those years uh, who could really turn their hands to anything to keep the show on the road, right down to, um, I'm particularly thinking of uh, 2001 uh, Lions tour to Australia, and we took over the old Parliament building in Melbourne for the, uh, the pre and post test um, event that, that we did there, probably with, a, I don't know, a couple of thousand people there, but we had the, our caterer had um, seriously, seriously underestimated the demand for, for for beer, drinks, and staff, and almost without without being prompted, our girls and the guys jumped over to the other side of the bar and ended up serving serving the drinks to keep everybody happy. It was just one of those things; they just took it upon them. You know, they went and did it. The the other big event that we did for um, over three or four years, we were uh, contracted to Pan Am again, but was for the New York Marathon. So, uh, and we had the entry passes as, as, as part of that, but we we split them up because there was such a big demand for it that uh, we were limited on the amount of passes we had. As long as we flew them on Pan Am, that was the deal. But we, we basically split them up 50-50, male-female. So that was, um, that was a female participating sport, probably you know, just as much as, as the hockey. I do re recall as well, we, in the 80s, we had a, a women's rugby team from USA came and we organised a tour of the UK for them. And they were quite a bit of a novelty at the time. But so, I mean, women's rugby has been going a long time, but I mean, it is, it's, it's really going something now, as we see with the current World Cup that's going on now. You talked a little about hotels and how important the Four Seasons Sydney um, was and, and, and the Excelsior in Hong Kong. Are you able to talk about some of the individuals and people that you worked with that, that allowed these hotel relationships to flourish? Well, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, particularly Four Seasons, um, uh, that really started with the Regent in Auckland, where Stephen Lewis was the GM. Must be Welsh. <laughs> but he, I know he was an Aussie, but, it, but there's obviously Welsh in there as well. But Stephen was really helpful with, would have been the 19, 
83 from the 1980, I think 1983 Lions tour, uh, may have been later anyhow, but but he eventually the regent became the Four Seasons in Auckland, and two of his main guys, sales guys there, Carl Sladen and um, Jason Stinson, who those guys all went on later on, but they moved across to Sydney then to the Four Seasons in Sydney. And we probably use the Four Seasons Sydney a lot more, and particularly for Rugby World Cup in 2003, but use it always for the Big Ashes cricket tours as well. But they, those guys knew that you've got a lot of rugby guys, and we would have, I don't know, two, three, four hundred people, I don't know, staying in, in, at the time of Rugby World Cup. So the whole bar at the kind of the reception area at, at, at the Four Seasons, they understood, you know, after the Rugby World Cup final, guys were going to be drinking, just sitting on the floor, even. You know, there weren't enough, there were plenty of seats, but not for that kind of celebration, which went on till they didn't close the bar, went, you know, they just let, let it go. They didn't say, oh, well, the bar closes one o'clock. It was still there four o'clock in the morning. But that was because you'd got guys like Stephen running a show and they understood nobody's going to get out of hand. And if they did, you know, we'd, we'd, sorted out um and then of course i think jason and carl went on to i knew i've known carl at the uh, caravel in saigon they've all spread on around asia i think jason there is is in uh, still the four seasons in in mumbai or somewhere somewhere or delhi somewhere like that but but they were all guys who helped us a lot it wasn't um and they wanted the business as well yeah, because yeah, like you said, it's important, right? Because when you're adding additional food stations, bar station, you have to proactively do what you can so that the guest yeah. experience is great. But there's also for the hotel massive revenue opportunities, because if you yeah. can't get it in the hotel, the group obviously would go to a bar or somewhere yeah. else where they'd easily enough be able to find some fun. Exactly. The Excelsior in Hong Kong used to, in their reception, one they put a little bar up in the reception area because... That old Dickens bar was an absolute mecca for rugby. Everybody piled down there. And you, but they had to put limitations on because it was a downstairs bar. So you, it, you, if you just let people pile, you couldn't get in there. So they then built, put a temporary little bar up in the reception area. And people could sort of spread out around there and up, up to the next floor where there was the cafeteria and what have you. But it, it's just having a mind to do that, a mindset to do that. You've got to have the right guy in charge who can see a revenue stream. And yeah, let, let's let's do that. Why not? But just because you know, the reception is a reception area, we're not going to have a bar here, but it just it makes sense. The Irish always get it as well with the hospitality. You know, as long as people are up drinking, they'll keep the bar open. Well, you take again the Burlington Hotel in Dublin and Juries, which were our big, I mean, the big Ireland-England games or Wales-Ireland games over there. We would fill up the um, the Burlington, uh, particularly, I, I guess it must be about a 200-room hotel, 300-room hotel, I don't know. But I was John Glynn, the GM there, um, so good that um, one, we always used to take our staff away, give them a surprise Christmas trip. They never knew where we were going. Um, and this one year, I mean, we'd um, we'd been to um, 
I like trains. We went to York, York Railway Museum one year. But another year, John Glynn gave us all the rooms pre-Christmas, sort of in a couple of weeks before Christmas. And we went, we took all the guys there for, for a couple of nights. And I think, you know, Aer Lingus came to the party in terms of tickets. I think we took about 25, 30 over there. The, the best one we did was though, we um, we took a good, we took all the staff, they had no idea, we just said, bring the passports along. And we actually went to Singapore for a weekend. Wow. And because of our connection with Garuda Indonesia, they, they didn't fly, they did, couldn't fly London, Singapore, but they could fly, they had rights, Amsterdam, Singapore. So we went out of um, East Midlands into Amsterdam and Garuda gave us the whole of the front of their business class section for about 30 of our staff. And uh, again, they had this little bar at the front of the plane. I think it's, I think a lot of the guys actually stood all the way from Amsterdam to Singapore <laughs> around the bar. And we had a couple of nights in Singapore and cruising all over. But we always used to try to do that for the staff and just something a little bit different again. You make it difficult, the, the progression. So going from York to Dublin is already a bit of a jump. And then when you start going to yeah, well, exactly. Asia, the, following that the year after takes some doing. But it goes back to this thing. You've got to always be trying to th I think of something new, something that's just a little bit special and will stick in the mind. John, are you able to articulate a little about some of the unintended consequences of being in the travel and tourism industry? Well, one of them really, I, I suppose, just <clears throat> would be we we dealt with the management when we were organising these tours of sides like the, the, the Cantabrians, which came up in 1979, stuffed full of all uh, the ex-all blacks and Queensland, Auckland, etc. But of course, we got I got to know a lot of the players as well. Um, and then we had like clubs who we worked with in the UK asking us, you know, if you've got somebody, any of those guys want to stay here if after the tour or if they want to come up. Uh, and we could quite easily have started to play a representation thing back then, but um, quite a few uh, kind of helped arrange. And it, it really was done on the basis of... Um, clubs that were already doing business with Gulliver's. If I could help them out, I was quite happy just to do it that way. But of, of three of them, the, 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 of them all, the, the ones that stand out were, were one, well, there were three Kiwis who asked me, they were playing provincial rugby in New Zealand at a, a quite a high, well, at, at provincial level. And sort of near enough, sort of um, perhaps all black trialists and that kind of thing. And then 85, 1985, there was the three were um, a guy called Scott Pierce, um, another one, Lindsay Rackey, a bit of a wild man, and the other one, Sean Lenin. And um, I fixed them up to go and play in Pontypool. And that season, yeah. Pontypool were Welsh champions, 85-86. So kind of worked for them. Um, they looked after them. Uh, uh, was the amateur era, but they uh, I'm sure they got them little jobs to do, getting the cart run around in. 
which I think they crashed actually or something. Well, I remember something about that. But the, the funny thing about that one was that Sean then went back to um, went, went back to New Zealand, and somewhere through midway through 1988, um, he called me and he said, "Hey John, I've, I think I've got one more trip in me. Um, do you think you could? Is anybody you could line me up with to go and play with?" Um, I don't know why he, he wanted to go somewhere else. Um, I think he may be gone and played in USA. He was one of those those kind of guys. I'm not sure, but anyhow, um, I got him fixed up. He came up in October '88, and he went to Boroughmuir um, through a friend who who was involved there, and so that was October '88. By January '89, he got his he worked out his Scottish heritage, and he he played the first of his. 29 games for Scotland and um, Sean's still up there now and uh, as I understand and been in coaching and he's got a young lad who um, young son who is rising up quite well through the the rugby ranks in Scotland too and then um, a couple of other guys who have done well through life if you want um, in uh, around about 1980, Bob Templeton, who had organised Queensland tour for, um, called me and said he had a young lad uh, by the name of Brett Gosper on the edge of his main squad, but he, he felt he could benefit from some experience in Europe and could I find him a club to go to for a season. Um, so... It, I at that time was doing something with Racing Club de France and the president, Jean-Pierre Labro, I just, I mentioned it to him and he said, oh, send him to us. Yeah, they fixed him up with a flat. Um, he, he actually got him a job in marketing, uh, which must have seen Brett through pretty well because um, he he went on, he had a pretty stellar business career in marketing. I think something connected with um Citroen or something like that, both in Paris and New York, uh, before actually coming back to rugby and taking over as CEO of um, World Rugby. And he, he's actually not that long ago resigned from World Rugby, and he's now running the NFL in, in Europe. And then the other one is um, Sir Clive uh, Woodward. Um, Woody, I think, got, from what I re recall, he he was working for Rank Xerox and he got he was getting posted down there. But I, I think this was I think Peter Wheeler asked me if I could find an introduction for him. And we'd done a tour, a couple of tours, I think, for Manly Rugby Club in Sydney. And I knew the president, Peter Bradstreet, and he I told him about Woody. And um, he went there. And um, that yeah, the rest's history about Clive, really. Um, but then uh, move on even further into the 90s. When I was on the board of um, Gloucester, um, my international contacts came to good use there as well. And again, uh, Andy Hayden um, was the in-between. Um, Andy found me a lad called Terry Fanalua, who had played for Samoa, but was, was playing in Auckland. Um, 
I then found, uh, he's a centre, I found Richard Toms in Sydney at the Northern Suburbs Clubs, a club who'd got five Wallaby Cups. The two of them came to Gloucester, and I would say, most Gloucester fans would say, they were probably the best ever centre combination over three or four seasons. Then, um, beyond that, by now the same, but the same year, um, a French journalist pal of mine, Francis Delterral of um, L'Equipe, one of the main rugby journalists in France, who done a lot of travelling with, with Gullivers, because we used to look after a lot of the, the French media too then, um, suggested Philippe Saint-André might be interested coming to Gloucester, sure enough, managed to persuade him. Um, Philippe arrived, first game against Bristol, scored two tries. Um, he then, of course, continued. He coached there and sale, and then been right through French rugby, and he's currently coach of the Montpellier, who are the current champions. And then I think lastly, he was a second row um, that Andy again got us. Uh, in 99, came to Gloucester, one of the greatest second rows ever. You know, only Ian Jones came on, who, and he's, and Ian sent, uh, spent about three years at Gloucester with us. Um, so that was kind of like, if you, I put that all under the banner of, uh, yeah, unintended consequences. But it was, you know, it was all, that was all just a, a kind of a sideline, really. Could have become something, but, um, Never, never pushed it that far. And fair to say, during that era, Gloucester had a better team than Cheltenham because going back to the original, oh, oh yeah, the seventies, Cheltenham was better than Gloucester. But you've just named some of some of the world's best ever players that you've managed to recruit. This this was twenty years after I'd been playing at the time. I see that, yeah, it, it, and no, damn me, thirty years. This <laughs> is the. Thirty years after I played at, at Gloucester, 67, 68, 69, 70s, when we used to beat Gloucester, Cheltenham did. Um, so yeah, you damn yeah yeah. It's, it's so this was thirty years later. Cheltenham unfortunately had had gone down the plug hole a bit, and um, Gloucester, of course, are, are, are still up there. Great side, great club. Wonderful, John. So. In terms of selling Gulliver's sports travel overseas, clearly over time you developed a network of agents and supporters. Are you able to, to talk about some of your more most important clients and, and agencies that were dotted around the globe? Yeah, I, I would guess the first one was um, came about again, well, uh, uh, the rugby union at Twickenham um, calling me, a guy, a guy who Ken Grover, who ran a company called Paxton Travel in Sydney, he got on to got demand in Australia, particularly Sydney area, for schools and and clubs who wanted to come to the UK. So he he they, he could organise the, the the tours for them. But he he went to see Ron Tenick, who was head of the schools section of, of the RFU at Twickenham, and Ron, I actually had played rugby with he's a, a Geordie like me he played for Northumberland and uh, which was my county and um, he just said well look give give John Hall a call so I met with Ken and from the off the back of that that then produced 
a long running a long run of tours coming up from Australia, um, like some of the major schools, um, uh, Newington College, one of them. They would come up. They they would come up around about December time over their Christmas holidays, and we'd organise um, rugby games for them. But they would do six week tours of Europe. And so that was a side which David, my brother, very much got involved in in sorting out for them. And and right down to junior rugby clubs like one called Canterbury Bankstown, they 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 they'd come up for a month at a time over it always was at the end of their season, October, November, and then it could be then over the Christmas period. And uh, there were and a part of that was because we bought the Swan Hotel in Tewkesbury in 1977 and it was people in Tewkesbury then got used to seeing um, Aussies who were, we obviously put them into the, the Swan Hotel in Tewkesbury for some part of their tour it's so you know and uh, walking around Tewkesbury in October November Aussies in their thongs sandals and, and shorts and uh, it, it be, you know the whole hotel vibe was was really good back in that that, that time while well, we had it um but so that was australia and then ken at um stephen's travel we carried on with that so and then we actually started gulliver's and that's his his business now and and it's it's um it's still running uh, yeah so then that was australia and then we new zealand we had oh mick willamant was former all black um he had Willem and Travel, and they became the biggest, and they were the New Zealand Rugby Union official operators in Wellington, right next door to the, the NZRU officers. So all they sent up groups and uh, to us that we again handled in the UK, and they would handle all our groups that we sent to New Zealand. Unfortunately, Mick died in 1994, but then it was carried on the business and a great relationship with with the son-in-law um uh Jammo, ross jamison and duncan garvey two of them they carried it on until such time as they actually sold out to tui shortly after gulliver's sold out to tui so we had some really good links with with particularly australia new zealand and and, and of course south africa where we had our own office in cape town from 93 uh, prior to uh, because we had we were given the world cup job to do in 95 uh, and uh, it was duncan garvey who also helped with that whole potential of the of world cup being moved uh, from south africa to um, to to new zealand uh, if things had all gone wrong john another thing as you talk about the southern hemisphere teams coming up north for their tours the Harry, my son, plays rugby, and he, he used to play all his life in Singapore. It's getting freezing cold by November, December. Those touring groups must have found it a completely different environment to play rugby and indeed to travel. Uh, well, it, it was, um, and particularly for Sydney siders, yeah. Um, uh, and there was just about every Sydney major club and there came on a tour and uh, and and it just with the weather side of things those though the ones that came up particularly december time i remember that canterbury bankstown team 
part of it they spent in a ski resort in Lausanne in, in Switzerland and their bus actually got snowed in and they, they were they were stuck for seven days there before they could get get out get out of the place but I mean they were, they were all just uh, they were they were great great tours for them great memories for all those guys technically John how how would Gulliver's work with the airlines on securing seats and could you also uh, talk about some of the key airline relationships that you developed over the decades as they came to market and as you grew the business? I think I think with the airlines all, all the way through, um, I, I, I think the first I mean, the first strong relationship we had was was pa with with Pan Am, um, who particularly through the late 70s, 80 into the early 80s and I remember 81 they used to be the the guys who who start who were doing sports connected um travel and in fact they did a world I remember we did a, in 1981 a world Pan Am netball tournament in Hawaii and that's where I learned that tennis courts and uh, on the island of Kauai I think it was they they pitched it um convert really well for as a netball court and uh, we we took about three teams i think from from the uk to to that tournament hawaii and again you know but pan am was kind of like sponsoring the thing so worked really well there then oddly enough well the the main sales guy then was um, peter moss the father of the celebrated kate Moss. Um, and Peter helped us a lot back in those days. I mean, and then in the meantime, Pan Am lasted, well, Pan Am went under in about early 90s, 91. Well, they, then, actually, they actually were an owner intercontinental where my father worked for them also on the hotel side. So he used oh, to have to fly back and forth between the UK and New York when they had their head office there. Yeah, they would, they would have great first class, but they would always be on standby. So he he could, would often be delayed a day or two because they hadn't been able to get on the flight. So yeah, so I remember those days. I, I, well, Pan Am had had tickets that were kind of graded S one to S ten, and S ten you were right down the bottom of the list of uh, on the standby list. And S6 onwards, though, was a nice seat at the front. Um, so I, I kind of got used to a lot of those uh, uh, during that time. And um, your mention of, of Continental, of course, but was, um, was another one we did, particularly for um, in 87. And uh, there was a guy there who get, called Dominic Sherry, who uh, went, who was Continental, was their groups guy. And he helped us move a heck of a lot of supporters down through Houston to um, to the rugby world, the first rugby world cup in 87 and then of course with the Dominic that relationship went on into his illustrious Marriott years and he was there with Marriott for another for, for 25 years beyond that um, and, and a lot of great characters in in the business then and I think a lot of the airlines as well though they they took group travel quite seriously. And I suppose a lot of it was because they were starting up. So Virgin in 84 started. And Richard Branson 
somehow or other got quite a lot of the Pan Am staff moved to Virgin at that time. Um, one of them was there, um, a lady, Jane Filler, who used to run the, the groups department within Pan Am. And she came to, to Virgin and of course, yeah, you try to sort of share share the business out, but they were hungry for business then. And I remember as part of that though, um, Richard was living in, in Holland Park and his he had one house in Holland Park there. Eventually, I think his wife got fed up with it being used as a as an office as well. And they bought the place next door. But I always remember um, I went to three or four lunches. Um, with a kind of select band of other guys in in the in the industry, just basically to have lunch with Richard, discuss what was going on, and what where the future trends were, all very laid back. And I think one of the funniest thing was he, I remember he brought in a pile of um, of papers, and these were all questionnaires or flights about what the what his passengers thought he should do about smoking. And of course it was funny because Richard was a smoker, but he, he didn't like anybody to see him smoking in public. But I remember him the, uh, with, we're going through and he's saying, we've got all these ideas of how people want a plane split up for smoking. And he'd finished up with his idea. He was gonna take the last three rows or so and put a plastic screen there and they would be made available with a, a bigger suction engine in there some kind of thing to hoover out all the all the smoke and you would queue up to go and have a seat and have a fag at the back of the plane and you know i mean we discussed that and thought yeah it was a good idea but of course pretty soon after that the whole smoking ban came in came in anyhow John, have you got any other stories about Sir Richard you can share with us? I just don't imagine that Ryanair and EasyJet would do this, for example. He had a, when he got his first A340, no, yeah, 93, would have had to be 93, of course. Um, he, um, the first A340 arrived, was coming into Heathrow, and uh, I got an invitation probably again through the groups department at Virgin, who we're working with a lot, Jane Filler there, the, the girl running it all. And it was just basically to meet the first, this first brand new aircraft he'd got arriving at Heathrow. So I went up to Heathrow and you had to check in as just a normal. And I hadn't any real idea. I was kind of anticipating we're gonna be up on the roof of Heathrow and watch the thing come in and have a glass of fizz and, uh, and that would be it. But they they put us on a bus, about 60 or 80 of us, I think, and took us across the other side of the airport into a hangar. On the left-hand side, there was this temporary stand, kind of as you see in a, in a sports ground. And so we would you know, take a seat in there and bus departed. And we were sitting in there and they started yeah, serving the fizz and the canapes. Um, and kind of in front of us, all there was this this hangar was empty other than for this red parachute which looked as if it was just hanging down over a bit of scaffolding of some kind anyhow didn't think anymore and clearly we i think we knew the aircraft was going to arrive in there but we didn't know much more than that that was obviously the thing but i think we waited about half an hour 45 minutes and you know a few of these and eventually the doors opened and outside there's this beautiful big 
bit of machinery being towed in by a tug, came in and rested its its nose kind of opposite where we were sitting. But, but in between us was this red parachute between the cockpit. I think we all thought Richard was probably sitting in the cockpit, Branson, um, when the thing came, but he wasn't. Doors closed again. And we we hung around probably another half hour it was, I remember. And then eventually the the doors open, big doors on this hangar, and there's an open top Rolls Royce coming in. And sitting in the back is Richard. And lo and behold, who's with them? Princess Diana. So okay. They Rolls Royce comes in, big doors close, um, and then they brought in this kind of cherry picker machine. Richard jumps on there with Princess Diana. Cherry picking machine goes up the side of the plane. But the plane had got actually a little curtain on the side by the, uh, just under the cockpit. Um, he has a bottle of bubbly with him. He gives that to Diana to undo the cork. She couldn't get off. So he, get, he takes it back from her, gets the cork off, sprays the plane. And at the same time, she pulls the cord on the curtain. And behind there is Lady in Red. So what happens then? You know, we've got this red parachute. The red parachute starts lifting up as she undoes the curtain. And we see it's Lady in Red, the name of the plane. And who's sitting underneath, been sitting on there for, for ages under this parachute, on this scaffolding, kind of at level with the plane's nose? is Chris de Berg at a grand piano <laughs> playing Lady in Red. I mean, you, 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 you know, with something like that. And he, I wish he was, he was brilliant. Well, we thought that was, that was it. It was all finished. He then said, right, those of you who want to come, we're going to go for a ride on the plane. So we're going to go down to, just down to Bristol, to the Filton factory, fly, do a couple of, flyovers of the uh, of the Airbus factory down at Filton for the um, for the workforce down there and so we all clambered aboard this brand new A340 and he was up front sit, uh, sitting you know in the front with 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 a microphone and giving some commentary with next to to Princess Diana and one I just always remember one of the comments being those of you sitting on the right-hand side of the plane, if you look down now, we are just flying over Granny's house, <laughs> in, in Windsor Castle, of course. So we got down to we got down to Bristol and did a couple of loops, and he tipped the wings and back to Heathrow, and um, uh, it uh, it's just something only Richard Branson could pull off. But I I just don't imagine. Ryanair or EasyJet doing those kind of things these days, you know, and and those kind of invitations. I'm sure they do, but we, we were getting new airlines all the time. So we had that with Emirates. We had that with, um, with I guess, Etihad eventually as well, all, all particularly the Far, the far East ones. Um, but he, he was, Richard Branson was, I mean, he's the, the ultimate showman for that. Absolutely. And in, you also had a relationship, right, to be say, with Sir Rod Eddington, who obviously was a big business rival of Sir Richard well, Branson. Oh, of course, yeah. I think probably, I think Rod was CEO of BA 
from 2000 2005 and I, I only met him a couple of times but one one was at uh, was a cafe royal a big sportsman rod an interesting sport and now sir rod um, um he um, it was the cafe royal sporting dinner of some sort rather about 250 people there ian robertson was the compare who was one of our regular gulliver's clients as bbc radio rugby man and um there were the, on our 10 per table and he had there was a guest um, a celebrity cricketer and a celebrity rugby guy and i just can't remember who who they were but they 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 set a little competition for each table to select the what they what each of the celebs had made up as their best world cricket and best world rugby team so on our table when everybody's decided that okay me john you you do the rugby the rest of the guys on the table rod being big on his cricket said rod you do the cricket so we i did my all-time world best rugby team and, and rod did his cricket team um and lo and behold um we we'd come up with the same as the two celebs with what with what they'd done so we won a thousand quid for the table but yeah, we gave it all back to charity anyhow but that was just one of the the, the occasions with rod a, a big sports fan and then i think you had in 1982, Air New Zealand came onto the market with the first flight into London. So that, that again, opened up other possibilities. So that by 1987, we were using them, of course, for, for the big, for rugby world, for the first rugby world cup, where we moved about, about a thousand odd down there, something like that, at which um, Air New Zealand would have had a good, a good number. Um, Qantas, of course, for, um, well, well, yeah, they've been flying since the late 50s in, into London. Um, but they then had a purpose-built groups department. They had a guy called Tommy Davis, who I remember come from British Midland. And Tommy you know, was pushing for business to Australia. So by 2003, um, Rugby World Cup, we, we moved about 3,000-plus 3, down there. A lot of it was on was on Qantas, and uh, we. But your your whole issue, what you met, you started off with about the tickets and linking the tickets, amount of tickets. But if we were doing something like Rugby World Cup as official, we could kind of manage the tickets against a seating inventory. But the but the airlines also knew, they would give us blocks of 40, 40, 40. Um, and we knew that we won't, you know, like an airline used to start off with, you could have your first, if you like, two or three rows at a really low cost. But you had to be sensible with groups and realise you weren't going to get them at the lowest price. That had to be a medium range. And we were always happy to do that as long as we got a block of 40 uh, and 40. So you could have three blocks of 40 and put a 120 on an aircraft because there were groups that would travel as a group of 40 as well once they got to australia and um, we worked tommy davis was a and you know came a good mate of mine and uh, he was there was there a long time john in 1985 emirates made their first flight which would of course put you in close contact with our mutual friend the lord mayor of tonnerreval mr richard vaughan Richard um, 
I'd known him through Golden Oldies Rugby Connection when he'd he'd run Concord Travel, I think, in in Australia, in Western Australia. And then he he went to Emirates and as head of commercial. And um, so had quite a lot to do with him, but then through um, Vic Shepherd and David Parker were running the, the show in um, in London. Uh, and also Gary Chapman. I mean, Gary was ended up as like number two, number three, head of finance, buying the planes and all the rest of it. And Gary had started when they had with Emirates when they had four aeroplanes. Um, but I think I may have had something to do with as well with introducing Gary to the IRB and the IRB or World Rugby now getting that close relationship as a sponsor of Rugby World Cup. Uh, and what have you, and I mean, and Gary was very much responsible for getting um, Dubai Sevens off the ground and getting it into the the main Sevens seven circuit. Great airline airline to work with, and all you know, helpful in terms if you 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 want to get staff to see places. As I said, you know, prior to Rugby World Cup two thousand and three, they would have given us. Uh, I, I don't know, quite a number of, of seats down there is familiarization for the staff to go down and know what the what you know what we were using down there, etc. Um, and I don't think there's that in the airline industry now, that close connection between client or agents who've got groups or um, I think it's I think it's all probably a little bit more difficult. I think we had the best of the times. Well, if airlines are anything like hotels, certainly familiarization trips and complimentary rooms and other costs of doing business still happen, but but with far more scrutiny and it's far more difficult to uh, to gain the approvals that that you certainly even used to need at the start of my career, where it used to be a bit more laissez-faire rather than there needing to be a you know an A4 page justification as to why this investment would maybe worth it 12 months later. We moved, um, I would still think it's the largest movement by any one organization to um, to Australia. Uh, in, we had between three, three and a half thousand who went down for the Rugby World Cup in 2003, but you'd have to put them, the airlines would only give you blocks of, we'd want, I mean, they were very good Emirates particularly, blocks of 40 because that then would be the group that moved around Australia in that 40 um, but a lot of people think as well well if you just buy the whole plane you're going to get it really well discounted but you're not they you know our airlines the the first two rows at the back are put out there at a low rate but then it goes you know up and up to first in business but one, I've got to say, one of the, the best ones we did was with little old Air Namibia, who had a couple of uh, Boeing 747 SPs of 330 passenger planes. Um, and the 1997 Lions tour to, um, to South Africa, we, we used them from London Gatwick. They were flying anyhow, London Gatwick, um, Windhoek, um, Cape Town. Down there with a trolley with six packs and, and say have a beer please just give them a six pack seem through the flight so eventually of course they've got loads of empty cans there and um so the girls go down with with the bin liners and boys are great time just lobbing them in they were catching them 
And then the next thing you know is there's a couple of the boys who've got behind the girls going down, picking up the empties, and we have a conga <laughs> around the plane. Da, 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 da. And everybody going down the aisle, up the, around the back, up the other side, and up at the far end, at the front end, the uh, business class end, um, we um, where there was about I don't know thirty seats, business class seats, but there was a little bar. But we didn't mind. We just it, it was all free booze anyhow. But whether you were in economy or that at the front end, everybody just got around that bar in the front end where there was much more space. Lots of the guys just standing around have, having a beer. And but I always remember the skipper, yeah, uh, South African skipper, who um, he came down the. I met him as he came down from the upper deck, down the stairs. And he looked around and I said, he said, gee, man, no wonder I can't keep these bloody things nose in the air. <laughs> so he said, and I'd met him earlier before we took off. And he said, look, can you get them to just spread them out a bit, down the plane a bit? Can't have everybody. Yeah, the at the front near business class. Yeah, yeah. John, when your groups of 40 would land in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, they would be escorted by some of the sporting ambassadors, but clearly these were large groups. Were there, were there any other Gulliver's staff or people that, that you would, services you would call on to really make sure that their experience was smooth and everyone had a great time? Well, yeah, of course we did have to bring in quite a number of freelancers, particularly for the, the, the big tours. We just didn't have uh, you know, the staff at Fiddington Manor at Tewkesbury were the, the main guys putting the, all the packages together. But we we did build up quite a number of, um, of freelance, freelancers who would act as tour managers underneath um, a pod leader. So there'd be four or five bus loads with, a, with um, a pod leader. And then we'd basically have a number of just regular rugby guys um, who just loved to go on a trip were people who could talk to um, the um, rug other rugby guys. And, and I have to say, a lot of the success that, that we had was down to them. And then uh, the, you've got guys like um, Tan Curran, who was, I, was a Gloucester prop, who I played with a bit, um, um, former tax inspector who... Quite, was quite liberal with his advice to, to clients as well, if he, were, if he was ever asked. Um, there was, um, who else was there? Sean Holly was another one from, um, I think was um, Scarlett's coach. Um, Bob Reeves was head of sport at Bristol University, became um, president of the RFU, in fact. Um, Martin Richards, a copper, from detective from South Wales. Um, David Foyle, former Gloucester chairman of, of, of Gloucester Rugby Club. Um, Terry Sands, another one who started Samurai. They, they were all guys who did a number of these big tours for Gullivers and looked after, had to look after the well-being of 40 odd guys Women and Sarah Sinclair, another a lady who did a lot of work for as well. Not to forget that side of 
John, as the game grew, clearly Rugby World continued to grow, but other media got involved. Can you talk about some of the media that came on the trip and their role in growing the game? Yes, well, as I said, um, Rugby World magazine was, in fact, the major outlet, if you like, for promoting rugby, uh, rugby tours and uh, anything to do with rugby. And in the in the uh, all of those, well, various editors over that time, if I think back right to 19, um, 1983 tour to New Zealand, um, the editor of Rugby World, I think we did a promotion with him, but the editor was then was Steve Jones, who is now 49 years later, Sunday Times head of head of rugby. And the funny thing was, Steve came with a group which traveled out via it was what we tour we called the Westerner, and um, went out via Hawaii, Los Angeles, Hawaii, that way, Fiji, and um with his wife Karen. And um about two or three weeks before the tour they left for for to follow the Lions tour, he he got the job on on the Times, Sunday Times. But he still stuck with us and um, he went with the tour. He reported the tour, being amongst all the supporters and the fans, and they all love that stuff. And um, he he did manage to lose. They had a stop in Hawaii, I think, on the way back. Somehow or other, there was some fable of me. He he lost a couple of our clients, but... um, he did the whole thing, and 49 years later, he's, he's, he's still a good mate of mine. And But but all of those guys, we we then started taking, you know, the media wanted to sort of travel together. But some of those guys, like Clem Thomas of The Observer, who, you know, he played, played 10 years for Wales from about 19... 48 or something like that but Clem on the Observer his mate Peter Robbins who was the Financial Times again unfortunately Peter died late 80s um, but great characters along with the, then the likes of John Mason um, John Mason was the Telegraph um, Ian Robertson the BBC um, Peter Jackson Daily Mail McCleary Daily Telegraph um, Terry Cooper, um, PA, the, the, all, all great guys to go on a tour with. For, and I tended to sort of mix with them a lot on a lot of the the, the, the trips. And you're away for away for a couple of months with some of them for a long time. Um, and they, um, yes, but they became mates, and we just regularly did all all the travel travel business for them. And of course, long tours business class uh, most of them back in those days um it was was good revenue excellent john if you had to distill your life philosophy or approach to business down to just three words what what would they be i think attention to detail has always been uh, in terms of for our if you're taking a group away and i've got to i've got to say with groups Democracy doesn't always work. You know, if, if you you can't give a group um, too many options they, they, to make their minds up, because that creates, well, I want to do that. No, I don't. You want to do that. No. 
we're doing this today. And so you, it's much easier to handle that way that if you just give them, this is what we're doing today. Uh, it's not being dogmatic. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. There was nothing you had to do on a Gulliver's trip. Um, you know, we would do vineyard visits, brewery, you know, all the cultural delights of a, of a rugby tour. And most of them wanted to do it. But, but they didn't have to do any of it. You're not sort of led along with a, a lady with a, an umbrella with a flag on the top or something like that. It's nothing like that at all. It's, it's all it was always just as relaxed as possible. Um, but and also the, ho the hotels trying to make sure that they, they were of a good, a good standard. And that not always possible in some, you know, for South Africa in 95, there'd been, there'd been very little capital put into renovation of hotels and thing, uh, that, that kind of thing. So a little bit threadbare, some of the hotels, but we had the best of them down there. And again, hotel groups like Southern, Southern Sun built up a fantastic relationship with their top guys down there. Um, you know, Neil Fraser was the main sales guy and uh, all the way through my career with Gulliver's, uh, Neil was always there after, after Rugby World Cup uh, and, and Ron, the chairman of, of the Southern Sun Group, you know, I was sort of dealing right up at that level. Um, and really good guys and they, you know, they wanted the business and they wanted to be to make it as good as possible for our our clients. Excellent. And that, then you you sold the business to Kuoni a, a, a good number Tui. of years Tui. ago. But um, no, Tui. no, Tui, Tui. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. You sold the business to Tui, and and um, continued to travel extensively, and obviously still involved in in a myriad of businesses. Was it a tough decision to sell and and sort of move move away from? Gulliver's sports travel and and how long did you actually have to give a thought to the decision to sell? Um, no, it, 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 it no it wasn't it wasn't a difficult decision to sell. Eventually, to be honest, we'd had a couple of um, offers from about nineteen ninety nine, in fact, um, and I had just decided no, there was more growth. And I, I think we might have got to a point where growth perhaps was stalling a little bit in my mind, uh, because with the, the internet age, it's so much easier for people to, the, the, with Gulliver's, there was comfort in knowing you got, uh, and as one Gulliver's punter told me, he said, I love going on, Gulliver's trips because I leave my brains in a bucket when I get on the bus that picks me up in Clinethley that takes me to the airport and I don't pick them up again until I get back to Clinethley. I know it's all going to be sorted out for me. Um, but I, I think with the, the, with the internet age, people will go and take a chance on, on booking hotels. And, and I see that, for example, when uh, at these European Championship games, uh, well, um, what is used to be the Heineken Cup, I'm, I'm not sure what it's called now, but um, it's a bit of an oddity to me, but they don't tell you exact dates, but some of the guys will go and 
make a guess to get the flights and the flights might be 19 quid or something well it's, it's worthwhile taking a punt for two or three weekends and if you have to throw one away later it doesn't matter um but you might you know so they, they like a lot of the guys like doing that and just and then trying to find a hotel as well uh, themselves so they i think there's more individual travel now of people wanting to do it themselves just with a bunch of mates i don't think the idea of being like what say gareth and phil and billy did in in, in the 80s of going away on the the first of may on a tour and getting on a bus and going with a group and moving from place to place together for a month or so six weeks even then there's not so many people around who want to do that so that that was that was kind of a deciding factor as well and about the other aspect of it is is that we our events international was a hospitality business which um we bought and one of our contracts for example was at twickenham uh, and the uh, just behind the, the east stand on the other side of the road there the orchard suite which paul terry used to run that which was very good very good business but eventually and we did it officially for the rfu and paid the rfu a lot of money for doing it um and have about a thousand 1200 covers on that site there for an england wales game or what england new zealand whatever they then in their wisdom decided and you lots of it you can't blame them hang on we're going to do this why do we need to let anybody else do this do this ourselves so they built an extension onto the east stand and now they've stopped all the other hospitality that's going on around there that they can stop so i mean obviously there's little businesses still going on but I could see that was was going to be an issue uh, for us with with other other um, sporting bodies deciding how oh, no we 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 want to be in charge of this we and if you did do it the rights the costs of buying the rights for those events were had been sucked up so high by the stakeholders that really was hard to make anything make a profit out of it so that 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 was quite a big influence in deciding that um going to sell but i also sold it to tui because they wanted we'd been approached by thomas cooks thomas cooks had a uh, um their way was then to change the name get rid of the name which to me just seemed I mean, i'm not going to do that um Tui wanted to keep the name on, which was a, a main a main aspect, um, and and they have and they've moved it on. I think Gulliver's is doing quite well again. I think they went through some tough times, but um, because a lot of my the old staff are there, the finance manager. In fact, I mean it's it's now what it's thirteen years since I sold it, um, but he's just he's just left, but he. He says they're in quite good shape. So, in your story, how much of your success would you attribute to to really hard work, and how much would you place on a bit of serendipity and and being in the right place at the right time? Um, I, I used to put a lot of hours in writing writing the brochures, and uh, and back in those days, and we had a printer in Abergavenny, 
who used to come up and and where he'd go backwards and forwards. I, I, That's five, all... five miles from where I am right now, Abergavenny. The, 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 the what? Five miles from where I am right now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah Gwillem. Gwillem was the our printer, did all our brochures. And I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd work all night trying to, you know, get a, um, a brochure written and Gwillem would come up and we'd set it and what have you. Um, uh, but but that, that was hard work, a lot, a lot of hard work. A lot, I mean, you didn't think of the hours anyhow. Uh, it, it definitely is. And I think if, if you work at something long enough, it will more than likely come right. Might not work immediately, but it, but if you just stick at it, it will. But but then there's the other side. In in the seventies and eighties, Australia, New Zealand were opening up, and what happened to be there. So there was a time and a place thing going on then, which was which was right for us, bringing bringing Australian groups up and Kiwi groups up to the UK. We did lots of tours for Australia. The the main big Australian club sides as they were then um, to, to Europe and school tours as well. Tra travel and hospitality, what advice would you have for an 18 year old John Hall if you were starting your career right now? Mm, I, th I think um, what is trying to keep it personalized as much as possible and try to, within that sort of hospitality area, you've got to be always thinking of what can we do to surprise the client what 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 is there that is a a can't have in any other walks of life and i think one of the first ones was bearing in mind china only opened up in to tourism 1978 i think in the early 80s when we were doing the hong kong sevens we used to take um we'd take about 40 odd to Beijing before the um, before the uh, before going on to the sevens, and we this one I think this one year obviously the wall had only the Great Wall had only just been opened up, so I'd got our hotel in in Beijing to think of something imaginative to for um, as part of taking a busload of people to the wall. I think it's probably about an hour and a half drive from Beijing before you get anywhere. Pretty drab countryside dry arid and there was really no no tourism as no little kiosks and all that around so you drive down a couple of hours to get to where you can get onto the wall and the bus pulled around the corner by the time we got there about lunchtime pulled around just into this barren sort of little gorge area and there they'd set up this fantastic buffet on crisp white tablecloths and all a little, you know, there was a bar there. They've got draft beer down there for the boys. And bearing in mind, these are these are rugby guys, and a most fantastic buffet. We got off the bus, and you think, what's around here? But the, the, I think it was the Swiss hotel we used to use. I think it was called that in Beijing. Did a fantastic job, and it just sort of it was an impact, smacked you in the face. And oh, this is, and then getting up on the wall and doing all of that as a first sort of memory of of China and the Great Wall. Um, and 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 that's a red line through all your events because it, obviously you're talking about that that great hospitality in a 
in an environment where you where you would expect the Great War, but but nothing around it. But when you were taking those ex-rugby players who were only a couple of years stopped playing as ambassadors and everything that you did was not just the bare minimum or good enough. You were always exceeding expectations. Well, but you weren't with people like um, Peter Wheeler was one of the earlier ones with us um, for the British Lion, England. And in fact, Peter did quite a lot more than just you go with it. But Peter um, also, in our first bid, the National Rugby Board were actually based at the East India Club, you know, nice old stuffy club, a gentleman's club in, in London. And we had to make our presentation to the board there for the, to get the travel rights for the World Cup in 1991. So around about 1989, 1990. But Peter sort of joined, he, he came in as a not long finished rugby player, um, just to give it a little bit more, get more body um, uh, as part of our presentation. And, and Peter did a lot with us for a number of years. Yeah. Fantastic. And then also on the subject of travel and hospitality, Obviously, there's vacancies globally now, but there's also some commentary on it being a, a tough industry to potentially progress career-wise. Uh, you've had an enormously successful career and seen the world. Are you able to talk to some of the reasons why you would recommend it as an industry for people to work in? I think, uh, without, without a doubt, travel, being able to travel, um, broaden, broadens the mind. And you just, I just think of all the guys who I knew who got out, particularly to the Far East, who seemed to come through, I think, um, a hotel school in Shannon. I don't know if you know that a lot of guys would end up and also on the back of the old Trust House Forte setup. I think whether they worked there or they certainly came through the... Um, a lot of them through Shannon, that's the hotel school there. One of them, Danny McCafferty, ran uh, the Dusatani Hotel in Bangkok, hotel used by Thai royalty, but also used eventually. You know, our we used to use that a lot with groups passing through on the way down to Australia, New Zealand. Danny loved his his rugby as well. Introduced us to the British club in uh, in Bangkok. Which you know we got all our guys. I think one one year we even got a, a team from amongst the supporters to go and have a game against the local Bangkok expats or something like that. But um, I think it, uh, that whole thing it just gives in travel. It gives you the, the ability, and I mean you you've done a fair bit of it. You, I think you. Um, it's a bit of that colonial that colonial spirit that you get. When you're overseas with uh, with your other likes of your your, your own people from your own country, and I, I, I think it's um, it's got a lot going for it. John, thank you for the generosity of your time. I'll I'll leave you uh, with just one last question. Which, if you were going with with the misses, not on a rugby tour, which, which city would you like to go to? And is there a particular hotel or restaurant? That, that you visited over your years that, that would be a favourite in either of those categories? Oh, God, this is the memory thing now, really, a lot. Uh, I, I, I've got to say that um, if the Pyrenees on this latest trip that we, we just did with the old Bentley cars, um, there's a little hotel in the mountain there in a, a little village called Saint-Savan. It's only a three-star, 
family-run hotel called La Viscos. And I just love the, the Pyrenees and um, everything up there is just back to nature, etc. But La Viscos, you have um, Jean-Pierre Jean Martin and the St. Martin family have, have had it since the 1800s. But Jean-Pierre does the breakfast and he does the most magnificent... You don't normally get fried eggs in a, in a, in a French hotel. Fried eggs with local Bayern... Bayern bacon pigs brought up eating acorns or acorns and he does a fantastic omelette as well the evening meal is done by alexis's son who does is is cordon bleu and their other son aurelian has the has a brass just opened a brasserie in the square in the little village and mama and uh, the, uh, the 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 wife of Alexis run reception. It's a small. It's only about nine ten hotel uh, ten room hotel, but it is it's 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 fantastic. And I know I've been in, I've been in. We stayed in the Palais in uh, the Hotel de Palais in um, in Biarritz on that trip as well, and that is wonderful. It was a hotel built by one of the Napoleons for Josephine as a little. A little giveaway to keep her quiet it's absolutely fabulous but somewhere like that up in the mountains in Saint Savan is um, is to me is a breathtaking place and uh, fab fabulous from the, the the culinary side and the friendliness etc uh, that that's probably it although I'd have to say the Four Seasons in Sydney again is another great hotel in the heart of the rocks well John yeah thank you so much it, it, Gulliver's and, and all the other accomplishments and, and the life you've led and continue to leave are really awe-inspiring. So thanks. Finally, Gareth, thank you for bringing the memory out of me. Um, and it seems that 2022 is a bit of a, of a watershed year because um, it's exactly 50 years ago since we started Gulliver's. And it's also 50 years in, on December the 9th when I got my big game against the All Blacks. And on the back of that, that kind of international connection, I think probably was the, the precursor to me getting, getting into sort of international rugby tours and everything that went with that. But the other side is 50 years is a damn long time to remember everything. So my apologies if... To anybody, if I've got anything a little bit out of kilter, date-wise, um, some of it might not exactly fit over this long extended period of talking to you, Gareth, um, but it's been really enjoyable and thanks for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Untold. Two fascinating episodes whilst John took us through the five decades of Gulliver's sports travel. As I mentioned at the onset, rugby really owes John and Gulliver's a huge debt for helping grow the game. And uh, certainly lots of Welsh, English, Australian and Kiwi fans also uh, have had some of the best moments of their lives on Gulliver's sports tours. So uh, it was great that he could give us so much time and tell us so many interesting stories of the company's inception and, and conclusion at the sale. Huge thanks also to Dom Sherry for helping set up the interviews and lastly, a thanks to Jake Sanders for the wonderful intro and outro music. 
More episodes coming soon. Thank you so much for listening to Untold.